want to survive a land like a rebel fish. Jogalist, specialist, predatory and survivalist. Spitting heaven, fire from his lips. Burn a slave driver. Welcome, listeners, to Time for an Awakening on Black Talk Radio Network, new media for the new millennia. This is a history and current events program from a cultural perspective. We find this program necessary because Hosea 4, 6 states, my people are destroyed for the lack of knowledge. But we as a people will turn this around. Proverbs 4, 7 states, wisdom is the principal thing, therefore get wisdom. With all that getting, get an understanding. Again, welcome to the program this evening with your hosts, Brother Elliot and Brother Richard. The number to reach us to join the conversation this evening is 215-490-9832. That's 215-490-9832. We're streaming live at several locations. You can go to timeforanawakening.com, which is the homepage and catch the live stream at that location. You can go to www blacktalkradionetwork.com forward slash time for an awakening again that's www.blacktalkradionetwork.com forward slash time for an awakening and catch the live stream there also you can go to abb2me.com that's a-b-i-b-i-t-u-m-i.com forward slash time for an awakening they stream from Ghana and catch the live stream there or you can download the TuneIn radio app to any of your devices TuneIn is a free app in that TuneIn app, just type in Time for an Awakening. You'll see the icon, and you can stream the program live, even into your car if you had the Bluetooth capabilities or the auxiliary connection. Again, that's Time for an Awakening radio program with the live stream on the TuneIn app. Drop us an email at timeforanawakening at gmail.com. Again, that's Time for an Awakening at gmail.com. Time for an Awakening also has a fan page on Facebook. That Facebook search engine, just type in Time for an Awakening radio program. They always see interesting content being posted daily by myself or Brother Richard. And do me a favor before you leave that page, just hit that like button. That's Time for an Awakening radio program with the fan page on Facebook. And Time for an Awakening media is also there. Always full of the latest podcasts of the various programs on Time for an Awakening media. Interesting articles that you can read, download at later times, and share with your friends. Also, check out that Time for an Awakening Marketplace and our partnership with the BB2Me. Always interesting things in the marketplace all the time. Various African language classes, classes on education, economics, social systems, health, and much, much more being taught by professors on both the continent and in the diaspora. So, again, make that one of your favorites. Put that in your address bar. That's timeforanawakening.com. Timeforanawakening.com will take you straight to Time for an Awakening Media. It's 7.09 on the Sunday edition of Time for an Awakening, October the 30th, 2022. On this uh, fall Sunday evening, and we're in the Sunday edition of our program. This evening, our guest, author, professor of African Studies, Anthropology, and History at the University of North Carolina, Charlotte, Dr. Akin Ogundrian, will be joining us this evening to talk about the pre- and post-colonial history of West Africa. Uh, a lot of people seen the woman king. They've seen a version of the woman king that uh, uh, that may be entertainment, 
let's get into that this evening uh, with somebody have, that have done the primary research and written several books on the subject. Again, our guest this evening, author, professor of African studies, anthropology, and history at the University of North Carolina, Charlotte, Dr. Akin Ogunjan will be joining us, and we'll be right back to get the program started after a brief word from our sponsors. Moderator, our distinguished guests, brothers and sisters, our friends and, and our enemies. <laughs> Everybody is here. You are listening to Time for an Awakening Media, part of the Black Talk Radio Network. For podcasts or live programming, hit them up at timeforanawakening.com. All Insurance Incorporated, an African-American-owned and operated insurance agency in business for over 20 years, located at 231 Southeastern Road in Glenside, PA, with other offices in Germantown and West Philadelphia. Call now for commercial insurance quotes, homeowners insurance quotes, automobile insurance quotes, notary and tax services, representing over 15 major A-rated insurance companies, offering a discount on all notary services when you call in for a free quote. Call this number, 21 21- 215-885-2444. That number is 215-885-2444. 215-885-2444. All Insurance Incorporated. Before your roof becomes unruly, call Dooley. Dooley Brothers, specializing in shingle, rubber roofs, gutters, downspouts, and vinyl sidings. Call for your free estimate today, 215-224-3882. That's 215-224-3882. Dooley Brothers Roofing, the roofing experts you can trust. That number again, 215-224-3882. 215-224-3882. Before your roof becomes unruly, call Dooley. RG Electrical Inspections provides electrical inspections for realtors, licensed electricians, and homeowners. Licensed and insured underwriter, serving Philadelphia and surrounding area. Call today, 484-268-9837. Overworked? Suffering with an underperforming company, headache customer, staff, or vendors? Or are you a startup who wants to get it right the first time and avoid the costly mistakes? We turned a $24,000 a year odd job handyman service into a seven-figure high-end custom home builder and commercial contractor licensed and operating in three states. This is just one transformation created for entrepreneurs like you in various industries around the country. Not where you're used to from accounting and business consulting? Well, welcome to New Business Solutions. If you're ready to go beyond advising, coaching, and training and get implemented results, call 301-244-9072. Let New Business Solutions apply the best comprehensive administrative accounting, operations, human resources, management, sales, and marketing to help you actualize your vision for yourself and your company. From anywhere nationally, call 301-244-9072. Spelled new as in numerous on your device right now. Book your free consultation at newbusinesssolutions.com. History is a clock that people use to tell their political and cultural time of day. It is also a compass that people use 
find themselves on the map of human geography. History tells of people where they have been and what they have been, where they are and what they are. Most important, history tells a people where they still must go, what they still must be. The relationship of history to the people is the same as the relationship of a mother to her child. From antiquity to the present, our people need to develop a new paradigm. It's time for an awakening with your host, Brother Elliot. Sundays, 7 p.m., Fridays at 8 p.m. For podcasting or live program scheduling, hit us up at Time for an Awakening at gmail.com. Welcome back. The time for an awakening is 7.15 here in the city of Philadelphia. Before we get started with our program, I want to welcome in my co-host, Philadelphia activist and tour guide at the African American Museum here in Philadelphia at 7th and Arch Street. Brother Richard is with us. Brother Richard, how are you, sir? Uh, I'm doing fine. I'm doing fine, Brother Elliot. Um, I'm looking forward to this this conversation. You know, Elliot, since we started this whole process of decoding the woman king, I really, um, I think I've been able to um, maybe change some things or, and definitely learned a lot. And, and as I was, uh, as we've been preparing, you know, to, you know, have this conversation with Dr. Akin, you know, is, is definitely a lot more we need to understand when you mentioned about the pre-colonial Africa or um, the African people who comes out of um, the area that, you know, now might be designated in the nation state of, of Nigeria, but just in West Africa in general. And I'm really um, honored to kind of um, flush this out, my own thinking, and hopefully Dr. Ken can, um, you know, be able to assist. And, 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 and for me personally, and hopefully for the Time for Awakening audience, for us to get a better and clearer understanding of our West African origin and the effect of, of just the development of a people over that period in time, the long period in time. You know, it, uh, this ought to be a very interesting conversation, Richard, so we can get a historical overview of pre and post-colonial West Africa. Uh, a lot of our ancestors here came off of that coast, uh, so we need to know uh, exactly what went on, uh, the history behind it, how it got started, who was involved. Uh, we'll get a, 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 a good overview tonight from a man that had done primary research in that area uh, that had written several books on this particular topic and published articles. Uh, some of them I have in front of me, the cultural resources in western nigeria written in 1992 january of 1992 archaeology and history of central yoruba land or nigeria from 1200 a.d to 1900 a.d written in january of 2003 archaeology of the atlantic africa and the african diaspora blacks in the diaspora written in february of 2010 the Power and Landscape in Atlantic West Africa, Archaeological Perspectives, written in 2012. Materiality of, of Ritual in the Black Atlantic, Blacks in the Diaspora, written in 2014. And his latest book, unless he has another one coming, is Yoruba, 
a new history written in uh, November of 2020. Our guest this evening, author, professor of African Studies, Anthropology, and History at the University of North Carolina, Charlotte, uh, Dr. Akin Ogunjian is joining us. Dr. Akin, are you there? Yes, I'm here, uh, Brother Elliot. Good evening. I'm glad uh, to have you. Go ahead. I'm sorry. Brother I didn't catch it. I didn't catch you. Dr. Ken, we didn't lose you. Oh, yes, I'm here. Oh, great, great. I'm glad to have you with us on Time for an Awakening with myself and Brother Richard. How you doing, Dr. Ken? I'm doing great. Thank you for having me. Dr. Ken, um, we want to cover a lot of area tonight with you so you can give us a historical uh, overview of Western Africa during some of these periods that's in question. A lot of our people, especially on social media, have been talking in reference to the movie The Woman King. Uh, mm-hmm. They see a vision of the continent, not necessarily a vision by uh, people of African descent, but a person that produced the movie of European descent. The actors were African. Uh, mm-hmm. But they see a story that, according to the movie, is centered in, I think, 1830, 1840. Mm-hmm. And you can't start any story uh, near the tail end. You have to go to the beginning to see what led to what you see in this movie now. Uh, We want to get you on to kind of give an historical overview. And we want to start with pre-colonial Africa. That'll give us a sense of really what's going on, uh, the history and background of the people there. And I'm going to be pulling some things from your last book, and I think it was your latest book, The uh, the Yoruba, A New History. Yes. You talk about um, the the kingdom of Yoruba, which Mm -hmm. on the map now would uh, contain uh, Benin, Nigeria, and I I want you to correct me if I'm wrong, Togo, and Ghana. The, The Go ahead. Yes, yes. Okay. You are correct. Good. Now, you talk about the start of that kingdom around 300 B.C. and lasted Mm. to 500 A.D. Mm. Now, Mm. if we look at history, uh, we can see around that period, if I'm not mistaken, that the Roman uh, civilization is going on around Mm -hmm. that tail end of that period. So we see two things happening at once, but let's talk of, let's focus in on West Africa during that period. And, and I'm going to start out uh, with a question. The Yoruba kingdom that entails, if we look at a map now, a lot of areas, does the term, was the term Yoruba a, a term that they used and did it mean the people, or did it mean the kingdom that was formed from the different nations, and they called it the Yoruba Kingdom? Help us with this. <laughs> well, first of all, I really appreciate you inviting me to your program, Brother Elliot, Brother Richard. Thank you so much. Time for an awakening. Yes, Um uh, many philosophers in the African diaspora, they have reminded us many times 
that if you do not know where you are coming from, you will not know where you are going. I see the spirit of your program uh, hitting that, that, that thing. Uh, the Yoruba people, which is the focus of my research for most of my career and also the focus of my latest book, they were one of the uh, 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 hundreds of African cultures that developed around uh, 5000 BC. They, uh, they developed about the same time as the Mande-speaking people, another very prominent African group. They developed about the same time as the ancient Egyptians, <laughs> you know. So they are one of those, so, but they did not form a kingdom initially. They've just, you know, there were, were, are people that we can call a civilization based on the shared language that they have. They developed small villages, they were farmers, eventually they began to make iron. And, but it's only about 500 AD that we begin to see some evidence that they were organizing themselves into small village polities or village kingdoms. And by 750 AD, the Yoruba were now beginning to build urbanism. They, got, they were beginning to build towns. And by 1000 AD, they are totally flourishing. Uh, as, as evidence in my book, uh, they were beginning now to build, to, to, to establish far flung network of commerce, innovations in technology, innovations in literature, but they were not the first or the only one. Uh, don't forget that by 400 AD, Ghana Empire was already on the rise in what is now present-day Mauritania in West Africa. And by about uh, 750 AD, other kingdoms like Takro and several other kingdoms like Mali Empire came about 13th century. So the Yoruba were one of those major civilizations in Africa uh, that had a very deep history. So the name Yoruba itself uh, is a coinage by their neighbors, the Songhai. The Songhai were the ones who coined that name for them. But that name itself derived from one of the subgroups of the Yoruba that we called Yagba people. The Songhai turned Yagba into Yaba. And from there, it became Yoruba. So when you have multiple kingdoms, multiple cities belonging to the same cultural universe, what usually happens is that their, their neighbors tend to be the ones that will give them a common name. Because, you know, you have Ife Kingdom, you have Ijebu Kingdom, you have Owa Kingdom, you have several kingdoms among the Yoruba, okay. you know, by... 1000 AD, but their neighbors, the Songhai, were the ones who coined the name Yaba for them to, to, to characterize the commonality that they see among them. And from there, the name Yoruba developed. Okay. Now, 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 now you really helped me with that because right? I was discussing me things. <laughs> me too. <laughs> me and Richard was going back and forth in reference to this. Okay, so we see a, a amalgamation of Different national, I'll use the term nationalities, coming yes. together to form this kingdom that mm -hmm. flourished. Now, 
Um, a couple of things I want to ask because in order for any kingdom to flourish, trade routes mm-hmm. and trade have to be established. Before we get to the trade routes and trade, because this is the, keep in mind, listening audience, this is long before any slavery developed. <laughs> yeah, Let's yeah. talk about the political, the social, the yeah. belief system, if you can, and the laws of the people during mm-hmm. that period. Because if you have a kingdom, it's clear that you have mm-hmm. laws. It's mm-hmm. not like yeah. we believe yeah. about some of our people running around. Uh, uh, doing all kind of crazy stuff with no laws, lawless, killing people, cutting off heads. It wasn't like mm. this. And I, I want you to emphasize, well, I know you're going to emphasize this because you've done the primary research. Talk talk about... <laughs> Thank you. Thank the, you for that question. But talk about the the, the four things, the, the political, the social, uh, the, the, the belief system, and the law of the people, if you can. Yes, thank you for that question. Uh, the Yoruba developed something that perhaps came late to you to Europe. Their political system was based on constitutional monarchy, whereby the king did not make himself. The king was made by the non-royal lords of the land. That means that Ultimately, the common people give power to the king. And when the king does not do the interest of the people, the people can again withdraw that. So that's what we call constitutional monarchy, which was already in place, by the way, by about 750 AD. So that is the foundation of Yoruba political system. The second dimension of that is that the Yoruba built cities. They lived in city-states. Some of those city-states eventually became empires, like Ife Empire, which lasted from about 1100 all the way to 1400. Then later, Oyo Empire, which lasted from about 1570 to 1830. So, primarily, the Yoruba believed in a city-state governance that is under the rule of a constitutional monarchy. Now, that monarchy included the king as well as the lords, the non-royal lords of the land. The non-royal lords derived their power from the people, and they act on behalf of the people to appoint or to elect a king. So there was indirect democracy in Yoruba political system. Okay. Thousands, I mean, well, hundreds of years before so that is also part of their social organization that the, the Yoruba social organization privileges the individual that every citizen has the right to, to, to land you cannot deny a citizen right to land you must have land as a citizen so that's another fundamental component of Yoruba social structure which is different from what you see in the western society so from th- from those two law images, right? Because if the if the king derived his power and legitimacy from the people, therefore he or she must and there are many female kings by the way, <laughs> he or she must subscribe to the interests of the people. 
Now, their religious belief is also very important because they believe in high God. They believe in the supreme God, Olodumare, who live of who they believe uh, is in the skies, above the hills that, that are the prominent landmarks in Yoruba geography. And on behalf of the, of the Supreme God, you have minor deities or minor gods who inhabit the realm between the heavens and the earth. So their, their, their religious system is so sophisticated that up to today, I, I, one can see that the Yoruba religion is the most influential in the diaspora among all the African groups. That tells you something about the sophistication of their religious worldview. They believe in the Supreme God. So it is not true that Europeans brought the idea of Supreme God to Africa. No, many African societies already have beliefs in Supreme God. And they already have intellectual, philosophy, epistemology that sustain that belief for thousands of years. So uh, the, 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 the fifth dimension I want to talk about, which you did not mention, is economics. You know, economy is, is, uh, is the engine of growth in Yoruba kingdoms, in Yoruba cities. And it is based on sophisticated technology, including glass manufacture, iron manufacture, steel manufacture. So all of these technologies that we see as the foundation of any civilization, these are all present in Africa, even before they were present in Europe. Dr. Ken, the, um, because yeah. the, I, I discovered this when I was talking to Richard in private conversations, that the, one of the, uh, uh, the pieces of commerce that the, uh, that the uh, people used during that period was glass and blowing. The blowing of glass basically started mm-hmm. on the continent. Yes. Uh, in fact, uh, it was in, in a city called Ileife, which is still existing today. Ileife is the place where Yoruba civilization matured around 1100 AD. That's, that is the place where what we call Yoruba today, the civilization basically exploded and became uh, standardized. You know, uh, it, that's the classical period of Yoruba civilization. It happened in a city called Ileife. That is, is, is an ancient city. It is one of the continuously occupied cities in the world. And its king is still there. It is also one of the oldest consecutive uh, dynasties in the world. If not the oldest, <laughs> it's one of the oldest in the world today. Uh, last already more than 1,000 years old. So th- that was the place where a, a, an invention of glass was made, at least by 1,000 AD. And they used that glass technology not only to build their economy, but to also build an empire. They were trading the glass all the way to Mali Empire, all the way to the Sahara. They were financing their exports with this technology. Their name got to the notice of uh, Mediterranean traders. They talked about Ileife because of the wealth it acquired. It was the richest in West Africa between 1100 and uh, 1400 AD. So contrary to these ideas that Africans always import finished products from, from, from other places in the world, there was a time when Africans were manufacturing high-stake 
materials, that they were able to use those materials to finance international trade. So glass was very important. Uh, where they used their glass mainly as beads, but those, they also used those beads as currency. You know, they were able to use them as money. You know, so yes, Ilife was the place where, so far that we know of, in Africa, south of River Nile, where indigenous glass technology took place, and oh. they were able to use that to finance international commerce. Before I pass the mic to Brother Richard, I, I just want to uh, uh, to mention this part again and and get you to expound on that because you mentioned it in. You didn't really mention it in passing, but you did mention it and kind of moved to a few other things. But you talked mm-hmm. about the women being involved in government. See, that's another yes. thing that to break this myth because, you know, uh, the brutality of uh, mm. of our ancestors towards women. Women were second class citizens. Uh, they didn't they didn't participate in things that men you just stated that in early government, the women were there along with the men. Yes, yes. The, the, the women in many West African, in fact, not just West Africa, in West, Central, East Africa, women were the backbone of governors. In Yoruba, for example, the women, the women were the ones who controlled the, the crown of the king. They are the ones who keep it. That means that they can withdraw the crown. So what is the king without the crown, right? The the people who control, control, who preserve, who protect the crown, they are women. In in West Africa as well, the women control the market space. They were the chief traders. That meant that the wealth of the kingdom resided with the women. So in that kind of society, you cannot dismiss women as unimportant. In fact, when you look at Yoruba religious uh, belief system, you will notice that the supreme being is associated with female personality. So uh, 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 women have always been important in West African cultures, yes, and including the Yoruba women were not second-class citizens in pre-colonial Africa. They were, they were co-equal. The Yoruba, for example, believed in the co-equality of gender, okay. the co-equality of men and women, that one is not subjugated to the other. <laughs> they, were, they were co-equals. So, uh, listen, Richard, I'm going to pass the mic to you right now, but, Richard, I just want to kind of reiterate with the Dr. Akin stated, because we get a lot of myths and falsehoods about our people being abusive to women, women mm-hmm. being his property, uh, 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 women as second and third class citizens. But we can see that our uh, uh, ancestors didn't start out that way. And if they, no. if you've seen them that way uh, uh, in that movie and, and other uh, uh, things later on, it, is, it shows a disruption of culture, and we'll get into that as we move forward mm-hmm. in our conversation. But, Rich, I'm going to pass the mic to you, Richard. You know, um, um, thank you again, Dr. Ken. Now, I want to um, acknowledge the, and I've I seen an article where you had did um, a site, you were, you got, you know, being able to be able to do an archaeological dig, and it is that in Bo- 
Bara is the name Bara. Um, yes, Bara. And so now the thing that got me, um, are you, and it's the way they phrased this, and I wanted to just confirm, um, in that settlement, does that go back to the 4th century B.C.? Or is it um, Bara, a settlement, you know, uh, uh uh, uh, and I understand based off of a little reading that it had a like wall built around it, which is, is interesting as far as the, which is a part of the Oyo empire, but the, the settlement itself, does it go yes. back to that date or, or is yes. it later? Yes. But I go, in fact, this is a very recent discovery in the last one, one year, but it goes back to 400 BC. And I suspect that it's even much earlier than that. Uh, because this is just the little work we've done in the last two years. Uh, but so far, we have 400 BC. Uh, I, I, I am sure that it will go even, it is much older than that. <laughs> mm, yeah. Yes. Uh, yes. Was, uh, was an early Iron Age society. It was an early Iron Age, uh, 400 BC in, in, uh, in West Africa. That is part of the period we refer to as the early Iron Age. Iron Age in Africa began... Uh, fully began around uh, 900 AD in some parts. We have evidence that it started about 1,500 BC, sorry, 1,500 BC in some areas, which will make it as old as the oldest iron technology anywhere in the world. Mm. But but by 900 BC, uh, many African societies were now uh, embracing iron. And don't forget the iron, iron age began in Europe in 800 BC. So, so uh, uh, six hundred years—I mean, actually, seven hundred years before Europe entered Iron Age, Africans were already in that mode. Uh, so, so uh, Bara is one of those early Iron Age societies that we just discovered in uh, Nigeria. And because uh, you know, and, and let me let me let you know that, and Ellie, let me let you know, and let, let the time for awakening audience know. Um, because I'm so um, interested in this, um, you know, the, just the history. And because of being at the museum, one thing that I was able to, um, um, our exhibit, our core exhibit at the African-American Museum in Philadelphia is dealing with um, um, Phil- Black Philadelphia from 1776 to 1876 and trying to do the historical narrative that just doesn't center in the American um, framework or interpretation and looking for the people, the first people that they uh, identify comes from the Alada um, people, the 150 people coming on the ship, um, Isabella, mm-hmm. come from the Alada people, which is a part of that, those ethnic nations that are in that area that you're mm-hmm. working and and your books and, and your research is working with. Uh, is that, would I be correct in saying that? I wanted to make sure I, Yes, you would be correct in saying that Alada is a different cultural group, but they are neighbors of the Yoruba. We call them the Gbe, the Gbe people of West Africa. Mm. They are, the Alada, at some point, was actually a vassal state of your empire that I study. Mm. So, yes, right, that uh, Alada was one of the cultural groups in West Africa. And, in fact, it was one of the places where... Uh, 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 Atlantic slave trade took off, but don't let me jump jump ahead. Right, yeah, right. yeah, and I, and I only wanted to bring it for one. There's a couple of points, and even looking, um, if if and I do 
um, you know, would like to say to the Time for Awakening audience, please get Dr. Ken's book. I think it's very, very um, well, well researched. And because of your background, you know, um, it, it provides us a, a, diff, a, a very clear uh, clear context to be able to deal with the general um, um, history of Yoruba, um, Yoruba kingdoms. Or and, and this is another one that as I was going through and just trying to be informed in this this discussion dialogue. So is Ife, Oyo, and Daihomi. Those mm-hmm. would those be the three um what's that civilizations that as we and I I'm gonna go back, but would mm-hmm. would that be a continuity of those three and, and do we call them civilizations or kingdoms? Well they were actually Ife was an empire. Empire which mm-hmm which lasted from about 1000 AD to 1400 AD. The empire eventually shrank in size, but Ilefe continued to exist today, as I said. It's still a city, you know. It became a city-state, and it continues to exist. Oyo used to be a client state to Ilefe during that time. And then when Ilefe uh, shrunk in size and uh, became less important, or you became important in the in the in the middle uh, in the mid 16th century, right? So Oyo was an empire as well. Daomi now Oyo and Ilefe, they were they were Yoruba empires. There were many other. There were there were hundreds other kingdoms in Yoruba land. When you when you think of the Yoruba, think about the Greeks in terms of their political organization, right? Mm. They have this common culture, the same religion, but they have different political units. The Yoruba were like that. They have several city states and kingdoms, but only two of them became empires. Daomi was not a Yoruba kingdom. It is. It belongs to a different cultural group, but it is a neighbor. It is. It, it is. A, it is. It is a neighbor of the Yoruba. So eventually, the Oyo Empire conquered Daomi, uh, and later, when Daomi freed itself from Oyo Empire, it also created some menace among the Yoruba. It destroyed some Yoruba towns. So. Uh, the Yoruba have always interacted with their neighbors. They were not insular. In fact, that is one thing that distinguished the Yoruba is that they were cosmopolitan. Mm. Uh, you know, <laughs> these were these are cosmopolitan people. So they interacted with their neighbors through trade, through political alliances, through political conflicts, uh, through intermarriages. So Daomi was one of those neighbors of the Yoruba, belonging to a different culture that we call the Aja, cultural group, Aja, cultural mm. group. Yeah. So that, that is the, but Daomi was never an empire. It was, it was a kingdom. Oh, okay. Mm. Yeah. And, <laughs> and, and, and going, going, going back to um, one of the, the things that seems that um, I've seen in relationship to when we talk about, um, and I, and I have, I struggle with this spirituality, the cultural matrix of spirituality. Um, because I see that it, it 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 isn't something. Well, there is no different, no differentiation between um, 
belief, spiritual belief system and say the statecraft, um, everything and the economic um, order, right? Everything is integrated. Um, yes. Can you can you help me? Help me. How do how do we um, see that? Because one thing that I seen was um, in some reading or in, in your, your book was that even with the glass beads as a currency, and mm-hmm. that's another element mm-hmm. that it didn't just it wasn't just a transactional element. It had <laughs> um, it it was embodied with the value system, the belief system. Mm-hmm. And and, mm. and that becomes important as we talk about later on. These yeah. this is different over time. So can you speak to that? How the spiritual system mm. and belief system as a cultural matrix of this mm. social order amongst Yoruba affected governance, um, trade, or at least um, the currency um, and, yes. and other aspects of of the people's life. Yeah, good question. Oh, by the way, uh, for the benefit of the audience, the title of the book that uh, Brother Richard was talking about is The Yoruba, A New History, uh, which is which is uh, published by Indiana University Press in November 2020. Now, um, Africans are profoundly spiritual. And, uh, yes, many Asian societies are also spiritual. But there are certain unique things about the Yoruba, which I'm going to elaborate upon now. The Yoruba do not believe in original sin. They mm. do not believe that. No. The Yoruba belief is there is that they are manifestations of the supreme God on earth, that they come out of a divinity. And when they die, they will return to that state of divinity based on their good work on earth. So from the day a child was born, that child, the ultimate goal of that child is to return to the state of divinity that that he or she came out of. So they see themselves as the manifestation of of the Supreme God. If you come from that kind of society, there will be some kind of self-reflection about yourself as you as you as you walk as you go through your journey in life, believing that you are a deity, more or less. That no, I'm a deity. I should not do unclean things. I should respect my neighbors' property. I should treat my fellow human beings as deities. I should take care of the plants, the rivers, the environment. Because you are one and the same with all these other living things around you. Because you are a manifestation. You are the representation of the, of the, of the divine order on earth. You are not born into original sin. No, that's not your culture. That's not your philosophy. So that is the fundamentals of the Yoruba. And that is why they can see divinity in every living and non-living thing including glass, including iron. When the Yoruba sit down to eat, they first of all invite the ancestors to join them because they believe the ancestors are present in everything they do. The ancestors are deified as well. They are, they are gods and goddesses in your home. The people, the, uh, when parents died, they were buried in their living room. So every day you are talking to your ancestors. 
you are talking to your diseased spirits right there. They are watching you. And you know that one day you will become like them as well. So the universe do not believe that the death, death is the final state. No. The death is just a transition into attaining what you are born to attain, to become a deity. Mm. So that's why the Yoruba and many other African peoples are very spiritual. You know, because they, 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 they see themselves as manifestation of the Supreme God on earth. And the ultimate goal of, the, of this life is to become an ancestor and to become a deity with an altar that will be established for you. And therefore, you will be worshipped uh, from, from from generation to generation. For example, my own name, uh, my last name, Ogunjono, it means the God Ogun exists forever. It will never die. <laughs> that is my name. So if you bear that kind of name, you, I embody the God Ogun. I embody the power, the essence, the spirituality of Ogun in myself and in my children. So. I am a manifestation of a grown up, and I am assured that I will live forever, not physically, but spiritually. Mm. So that, that is the principle, that is the, religion, the, the, the spiritual principle that, that guides the Yoruba people, that has guided them for more than 2,000 years. And, and, and as I, I, I pass it back to you, Elliot, um, uh, of course, you know, I have, I have 10,000 questions. <laughs> uh, and and we only have whatever, but I um the the and it's interesting that you mentioned um your family name is o, o, Ogun and, and Ogun being correct me if I'm wrong a patron of of iron if if I'm not mistaken um, yes you know yes. and 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 yeah, so that that's that's interesting to tie it back to and to to my last question as I'm, I'm passing back to Elliot because I'm I'm always interested in how um, as we're having this conversation and looking at then and and moving you know moving forward but looking at the origin story because when we talk about social organization I'm always thinking from the perspective of of organizational design. These are intentionalities in building mm-hmm. social relationships of governance, right? Um, yes. So this, when we talk, when you mentioned earlier in, in which your exchange with Elliot about um, how the, you know, and I, I see in your book, it, it mentions this, ex, it call, what you say is uh, innovating and experimenting with the double mm-hmm. matriarchal and patriarchal descent tradition. Yes. Um, that the the point of innovating that this wasn't just something that happened um, mm-hmm. over time. Um, people yeah. um, considered this was the best way to organize and govern a social body. Is there any mm-hmm. more that you can add to that in relationship to um, social organ intentionality of social yeah. organization? Yeah, you know, social organization, yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm happy you brought that up, that it's not an accident. It's not an happenstance. It's deliberate. It's by design. The Yoruba believe that this world we live in, it's a world that is filled with competing interests. I have my interest. You have your interest, then it's okay to have interest. And even it's okay for our interest 
not to be the same. So the Yoruba then say, okay, we are not going to argue about conflicts. Conflict is, is essential to innovation. Conflict is essential to development because it is through conflict that the best talent will be realized. Now, this kind of thinking is already clear that it's a thinking that you will see in people who live in cities, people who build cities, people who are not afraid of difference. So the Yoruba celebrate social differences, that, oh, it is okay to have difference, but it created a social system that will not allow conflicts to degenerate into social disorder. Their social system is created to manage conflicts. Mm. So ultimately, it is not about who is right or wrong. It is, it is how can we manage your differences. In as much as our differences are not based on hatred, it's not based on on exploitation. It is simply based on achieving our divine purpose in life to be the best that we can be. So if that is the purpose, you can be your best, I can be my best, without creating social disorder. So the European social system, therefore, is created to manage conflict, to bring people together, to make sure that society does not suffer at the expense uh, because of our diverse interests, you see, because of our, of of the of their diverse uh, or because of our of, of our conflicts of interest, so it's okay for conflict of interest. But how can we man- uh, harmonize those conflicts so that society can move forward? That is the fundamental principle of Yoruba social organization. <laughs> Beautiful. And Elliot, you, as you know, I, I, I can go on, but I don't want to, you know, I, I as they say, hog the mic. <laughs> <laughs> Dr. Ken, you, and, and before I ask this question or, or kind of move to another area, I just want to reiterate that w- what we're talking about this evening might, might be unfamiliar to a lot of our people here because a lot of this is unfamiliar to me, the intricacies of it. But mm-hmm. I want our people to understand in this conversation that we're not talking about, when we're talking about ancient African cultures and our ancestors that came here from those areas, we're not talking about angels on earth because the people had to, hold on a second. I'm sorry. The people had differences, but they came from mm-hmm. a culture from from what Dr. Ken is talking about that kept differences from really being detrimental to the progress of the people. Mm. It was respect in the communities, respect for life, all forms of life. Those things are the basis of a culture and the basis mm of those ancient African cultures. So when we see a degeneration of that behavior, it's something that went wrong. These are the areas now where I want to move into. Because, Dr. Ken, in your book you talked about the turmoil that entered, and you were just specifically dealing with Yoruba Kingdom. 
the, mm-hmm. uh, you, the Ruba world from 1400s into the 1500s. You talked about the mm-hmm. turmoil that disrupted yeah. and overturned the lives of several nations. Now, l- let me kind of build this question and you let me know whether I'm off base. <laughs> the disruption that you're talking about. Now, I'm just using one thing in particular. Because before Europeans came to the continent and yeah. did what they did, Islam uh, 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 traveled throughout. It was already in Eastern Africa and, and in Northern Africa. And West so, Africa, too. And in West Africa. So we see that it was a different cultural, I guess I'll use the term matrix at the time. And I'm just dealing with women. They didn't look at women the same way our ancestors looked at women. They looked at women almost similar, almost similar to Europeans as being property or second class type of citizens. Mm. Am I correct? Yeah, well, yeah, you are correct in the sense that uh, um, um, Arabs and uh, many other Afro-Asiatic cultures, they are they are they are patrilinear, they are patriarchal. Okay. African societies are matriarchal; they are female focused. Okay. Yeah. N- now, if mm-hmm. that's the case, and you talked about the turmoil and disruption that started to enter those areas of West Africa, talk about those disruptions that cause turmoil. Let's focus in on that because I think that can help our people start to put a picture together to what happened. Yeah. Well, you know, they, they, thank you for bringing this up. Um, I'm actually, my current research is is focusing on this particular period, although I talk about it in my book, but now I am, I am expanding that research to better understand what happened between 1420, sorry, yeah, between 1420 and uh, 1472, uh, when the first Europe, uh, Europeans arrived in uh, on the West African coast. I call this period a time of turmoil uh, from 1420 to 1550 in West Africa because that was the time that many Asian empires collapsed or began to collapse. Uh, Mali Empire, Kanuri Empire, Ife Empire, transforming the region into a kind of, you know, economically and politically depressed. But because of that, there are many causes for it. But one common denominator was what now we call the Little Ice Age in in global history. The Little Ice Age was a period of extreme drought in mm-hmm. West Africa. It was somewhere in Europe, because that is where where many many rivers basically froze in northern hemisphere in Europe. In fact, it was in response to the economic calamity of that period in Europe that drove the Europeans to the coast of West Africa. Um, I will be giving a talk at at Cornell next week. We are going to elaborate on some of these things. So when the Europeans arrived on the coast in West Africa in 1472, after West Africans were just they were they have not even recovered from this. They were just trying to figure out how to recover from it. 
and by the time they, they recover from it, a new economic system had been established. Mm. And that was the Atlantic slavery of the coast. Now, 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 when, now uh, excuse me, Dr. Uh, Ken, go back a little bit because your voice cut out when you talked about okay. You said it was a period of 40-year drought period. Oh, well, actually, it lasted, it, it lasted for about 100 years or 150 mm. years. It started about 1380. But you see, when drought began, it would take many decades for it to manifest, you know, in the, in the economic life of the people. So it actually began about 1380. But by 1420, it was now obvious. It was the, it was the worst drought in West African history since 300 AD. It was the worst. It, it, so when you have drought, what usually happens is that you have breakdown, you have famine, you mm-hmm. have lack of food, you have hunger, you have disease. Then political systems collapsed. Okay. You know, <laughs> you know. So we have we see that collapse lasting from 1420 all the way to 1550. Okay. That was the period I refer to in my in in, in, in my book. I believe that was chapter chapter four as mm. the, as atrophy, the period of social breakdown. Right. It was that same period that Europeans began to arrive on the coast of West Africa. But I I argue in another you know uh, lecture that what was affecting West Africa was affecting Europe as well at that time because while West Africa was going through in intense drought, Europe was going through intense cold, so that they were also suffering from hunger. They were suffering from many things, and the the Portuguese were the first to arrive in West Africa. Their exploration was 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 motivated by the desire to find a solution to the problems they were having in their own country. So when the Portuguese arrived in West Africa, the coastal area of West Africa was was not affected much by the drought. It was the mainland kingdoms. And don't forget that the coast of West Africa was, there was nothing happening there for, month, for thousands of years. There was not much happening there. Most of the civilizations, most of the kingdoms were in the mainland, okay? okay. So when the Europeans arrived on the coast, the people they met there, of course, they were thriving, they were doing well, they were able to get involved with the Europeans, and that affected the recovery process in Africa mainland. So uh, we need to understand the global context in which European-African interactions took place starting from about 1472 all the way to 18. 18- 1800s. So that is the background to the story about many kingdoms, many empires collapsed as a result of this climate change that happened in the in the uh, in the late 14th century, in the early 15th century. Mm, okay, well, go, <laughs> go ahead, Richard, because I noticed you wanted to. We yeah, we had talked about that, and when you mentioned it to me, I I was totally clueless. I didn't go ahead, jump in, Richard. No, no, no. I I I I, I mean, uh, uh, Doctor, can you really uh, again help crystallize that? Because it that's something that's not really spoken of that drought and the effect mm. it had. Um, even you know, um, it had on as a part of the destabilization process to those social systems that existed. Um, 
So that, 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 that makes, and I think, yes, you, you, and, and does that relate to the, what you call the big dry? Um, no, that's something no. else. Yeah, no, that was something else. The big dry happened from 300 AD, uh, BC to 300 AD. This is what we call the little ice age in global history. Okay. The, the little ice age across the world, I mean, many, many kingdoms and empires collapsed between the late 14th century and the mid 16th century. Many empires, many kingdoms collapsed because, you know, it led to droughts, it led to uh, famine, it led to food shortages, and, and as a result, many kingdoms were not able to maintain their population. Many diseases, I mean, disease also came in as well. Don't forget, this was also the period of bubonic plague in Europe. Right. <laughs> you know, so all of all those things helped one another, and then uh, it, it led to the restructuring of the global of the global economy. And, now, and, and, and let me, when you say the, the the global economy, I guess you could still say because um, Mali, um, um, Ghana, Mali, and Shanghai were um, trading, had trade routes going to North Africa on that yes. side. Are we saying that um, from the, the European people that they mm-hmm. also, besides having a large trading zone um, that didn't necessarily, uh, I, I'm asking the question, did the trade mm-hmm. zone um, of those in would be, the, would be considered the Yoruba land and people, well, did they move to North Africa also? Doing saying um, be, from the 1100 when we talk about Ife, were they trading with North Africa or um, no. I mean Europe wasn't coming in at that time? No, no, no. Europe, I mean, Europe was not in the picture. In fact, Europe was doing very <laughs> at that time. You know, yeah. no. Ife, Ife was trading with Mali Empire. Mali, okay. So Mali that's Empire what... trading with North Africans. Gotcha. So that so it was a, like a relay pattern of trade, whereby Ife would bring its commodities to Mali Empire, and from Mali it would travel across the Sahara and vice versa. Mm-hmm. Now, if you go to East Africa, the Swahili coast, they were trading all the way to uh, to, to China as well, right. to India. So, Africa was an integral part of global economy before 15th century. But Europe was peripheral to that global economy. Europe, the only trading center you have in Europe was in the Mediterranean. Right. The Italian city-states were the key, were the core of trade during that time. Europe was not really involved. So uh, what Europe was trying to do in the, in, the, in the 15th century was to become part of the trade, to become part of global economy. That is what pushed the Portuguese right. Of their of their homeland because right. they were they were they were they were periphery they, they were they were marginal to global trade at that time <laughs> you know so so and and then of course uh, and then of course the the arrival of Columbus in the New World and then yeah. other things happened and then <laughs> which increased, which which increased the 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 need for human trafficking which um, increased the destabilization. Um, or and the um, um, now uh, intentional conflict. Well, that's the way I, I see the narrative. But the, but the point when you said, um, and, and I appreciate, if you don't mind me, Elliot, I appreciate, I wanted to introduce something else that you we were talking about, and that is the 
um, market towns and the um, trade routes. Because mm. um, going from um, West Africa into, say, um, you know, where Mali, that trade between, um, you know, Ife and, and, and Mali, then the um, Islamicization of, mm-hmm. of Mali creates mm. a dynamics in of itself, right? In relationship to trade and in relationship to um, the Islamic world wanting mm. uh, human, um, you know, you, human captives as a yeah. part of the trade. Um, can yeah. you elaborate that, um, how that matrix, because we do see by the time um, mm. that, um, what's that, Mansa Musa becomes Muslim, but there is yeah. internal challenges in that. Mm-hmm. Can, you, can you sift that out for us, if, if you don't mind? Yes, 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 I can, I can. I mean, the, um, Africans, especially in the area we call the Middle Niger Delta, there are many cities there. Genegeno, Gao, Timbuktu, these were centers of commerce as well as centers of learning, especially Islamic learning by 13th century. So at uh, Trans-Saharan trade in, in Africa preceded Islam. Trans-Saharan mm-hmm. trade was already in place before, uh, by, you know, 200 AD, if not even before. But with the rise of Islam in the 7th century and the movement of Arabs into North Africa and the conquest of North Africa, then the trade expanded uh, around 9th century AD especially with West African gold coming from Bure, Bambok. Don't forget that West African gold powered the global economy from about uh, 900 AD all the way to uh, 14th century AD. Now, West African gold was the engine of global trade. So with, the, with, with that, Islam came through these trade routes into West Africa. So that by 9th century AD, you are beginning to see prominent Muslims. Uh, by 13th century AD, universities, Islamic-based universities were established in Timbuktu, in West Africa. But we should not forget that majority of people continued to practice mm-hmm. their indigenous religion, even when they adopted Islam in Western Sudan, in Mali Empire especially. Now, in, in, in the Yoruba-speaking area, in Ileife, they did not adopt Islam. They continued to use their own indigenous intellectual framework to organize their society. So now, with, it, with the arrival of uh, most of, of Islam as well, uh, slave trade increased from West Africa and East Africa to other parts of the world. Okay? So, Trans-Saharan slave trade, Indian Ocean slave trade, they were part and parcel of the first phase of African globalization. But that doesn't mean that majority of Africans were involved in slave trade. No. <laughs> there were other things that they were producing that were going into the global market. For example, in East Africa, they were 
they were they were exporting iron and steel to the Arabian world from West Africa. The same thing. They were exporting just, not just gold, but also glass into the Mediterranean. So uh, slave trade was there, but it was not the dominant factor of trade. It, go ahead. Go ahead, Alan. I, I was like, no, Dr. Kent, because <clears throat> you mentioned that the, it, would, it, it started then, the disruption started then uh, with the, yes. the slave trade. Uh, and mm-hmm. uh, Arabs was, was kind of instrumental in starting it. Um, mm-hmm. Servitude kind of predated all of that, as far as maybe indentured servitude. And the reason I'm yes. saying the reason I'm saying that is because when Europeans came in, according to a world history, it's only been five. And you clear me up because you're the historian. Mm-hmm. It's only been five slave societies in human history. All of them are European societies. I think it was Greece, Rome, uh, 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 the, the, uh, the, the Caribbean islands after Europeans got there, Brazil, and southern United States. According to history, it says that those are the five slave societies that ever been that ever existed in human history. So when Europeans come to the Portuguese in particular come to arrive on the continent in 1472, how did it get to the point where they basically instituted or introduced a slave society to Western Africa that had a different cultural base? that didn't mm. believe the same things as USPNs, how did it get mm. to the point where this took hold? Help help our audience yeah. walk through this. Okay, thank you for that question. This is very, very important, and it's, it's and one have to be patient in explaining this, okay? Slave, yeah, it is true that Greece was a slave society, Rome, and Islamic Islamic world was also a slave society. What that means is that the economy of the society depended on enslaved labor. That's what it means. And there's, sla- and, there's, and there's a class of slaves who had no right and who had no opportunity of rising to the top of their, of their destiny. That's what a slave society is. Now, let me say that because the Western Sudan, that is Mali Empire, Sunda Empire, they were integrated economically into the Islamic world. They also had some slave populations, but I will not call them slave sites. Okay. They were not. And I would, and I would emphatically say that no Yoruba state, no Central African people, the Congo, the Yoruba, the Igbo, the Akan, where most African diaspora came from, they were not slave society before or after Europeans arrived. Now, European slave trade on the coast of West Africa and Central Africa did not create slave society in Africa. It is true that human capital were lost. Human people, people were captives. But that did not translate into those societies becoming slave society. Mm. They did not. 
majority of products were still manufactured and made by free people. Yes, they had some slaves, but they were the minority. And in fact, there is a book by Paul Lovejoy called Transformations of, in Slave, of Slavery in Africa. And what Paul Lovejoy, uh, Canada, Canada, uh, University of Toronto said is that whenever Africa entered global commerce, where slavery was the dominant basis of economic production in, in Asia, in Europe, that it increased slave labor in Africa as well. And this is the reason, for the, especially for the European trade, is that European slave trade favored men, adult men, adolescents in male in the slave trade, right? When these vagabonds, these warlords mm. who engage on the African side, see don't forget that many of the pioneers of slave trade in Africa, they were vagabonds. They were they were people lured into profit. They were not, they were not initially uh, 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 kingdoms. They were not African kings, contrary to what we always hear about. The first phase of slave trade in Africa, many African kings, like the king of Benin, they rejected it. They did not want anything to do with it. It was the second generation. People who did not come from any kingdom. I mean, there was no Dalmi kingdom before Europeans arrived on the coast. Dalmi kingdom was created by European slave trade. <laughs> we should not forget that. So it was those, those, those second generation who used the profit or the, the, the opportunity of slave trade to build wealth and to create kingdoms. They are the ones that began to involve in them. Ilefe did not engage in slave trade. Bini did not engage in slave trade. Yes, they sold some of their captives, but they were selling only 250 people per year. That is why the Portuguese could not find the labor they wanted from the Portuguese. That's when they moved to present-day Alada, present-day Benin Republic. That's where they went to Wida. That's how they went to Taomi. These were second-generation kingdoms. They were not the old classical kingdoms. So slave trade did not lead to slave society in most parts of West Africa. So I, I, I just want to clarify that. Dr. Ken, before I pass this back to Richard, almost like we're in a relay race, let's, <laughs> let's, let's, let's go back because you said that initially it was vagabonds of the society uh-huh. that was coerced into doing this. Now, let me go back and and kind of uh, uh, uncover where these vagabonds came from. Now, let, let me and tell me if I'm wrong or if I'm off base. Just say, for example, uh, it was cultural mores and laws in those kingdoms. And then let's use the Yoruba kingdom or whatever kingdom existed during this period. Mm-hmm. Just say I've violated a cultural law. Just say I raped a woman. And I was put out of my kingdom because they didn't have jails during that period, did they? 
No, they did not. Okay. So if I was excommunicated from my kingdom or my people because of my behavior was was Mm -hmm. not uh, uh, culturally based or I violated a law and I was put out, then you you're talking about these type of people were the ones that were used initially to to propagate uh, uh, human trafficking. When you say vagabonds, is that what you're talking about? Well, I'm talking about those people who are who are stateless. I'm also referring to to people who have access to instruments of coercion, instruments of death, and that would be weapons, right? People who have access who are who have access to to instruments to coerce to destroy. Those people were part of the early, I mean, the the, the phase of of organized slave trade. Now, now, eventually, eventually, some kingdoms like Oyo, Oyo Kingdom, for example, got involved as well because that was the they saw it as the only way for them to preserve themselves and also to make to build wealth. They got involved in it, but in the early phase. I'm talking about 1472 all the way to 1600. Many Yoruba kingdoms, many West African kingdoms, actually did not want anything to do with it. But by 1600, the pressure was enormous that some people like, uh, some kingdoms like Alada Kingdom, like Wida Kingdom, these are very small kingdoms. They began to they be, they began to terrorize their neighbors, capture them, and sold them into slavery. But in this, but at the early phase, major kingdoms did not they were not involved in this. No, no. If at all, they, they will sell some of their captives, some of their war captives. They will sell them. Some of those people that commit crimes and very I mean like a, like a capital uh, punishments. Instead of of killing them, they will sell them to the Europeans. Like someone will rape someone, someone will, will kill another person. Yeah, those people initially. But eventually, uh, society was already fragile, and that fragility, the European traders were able to take advantage of that, uh, and and then many many more policies began to get involved in it. So 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 the. the... For example, these these vagabonds that might have been outcasts from society, uh, mm-hmm. the the Portuguese that came there, which was followed by other Europeans, armed them because Africans didn't have a musket at the time. It wasn't invented in Africa. That, that, well, you know, initially musket had little to do with 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 uh, with uh, slave capture. Uh, capture. Okay, uh, you. Will capture people without using muskets. Okay. Because muskets kills. You know, muskets doesn't capture. So, it, 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 what see what was happening also was that you have kidnappers roaming, roaming the bush, roaming neighborhoods, and capturing people as well. Some were not based on organized warfare, and later when some states like Oyo Empire got involved in it, it become a large-scale enterprise. Okay. 
when Daomi got involved in it, it became a large-scale enterprise. But initially, uh, work, you know, capturing people, kidnapping people was enough, and uh, 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 to to you know enough to to sell and to make money. And then those people can then use their money to establish their own trade, establish other things. So that was how it started. But organized state uh, warfare targeted at capturing people uh, only began uh, 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 in the late 15, in the late 16th century. Richard? Yeah, there's um, it, a couple of thoughts that, and, and, and that runs through my mind. Um, um, and I'm glad that we, we landed at Oyoke because that becomes, you know, mm. a, a, a place where a lot of, of, and I just want a lot of this activity of, of this human trafficking, you know, and from the uh, empire um, starts to expand. I mean, from that area anyway, and, and how, as again, which I think is important to keep in mind what you mentioned earlier about that, what you call that drought or little ice age, the drought yeah. Uh, all, yeah. all the way up to 1550, because now the societies are, destabilizing because mm-hmm. of the environmental condition and this mm-hmm. activity is now increasing in order to readjust itself even to creating um whether it be um bandits or 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 societies that feel that it would rather go in other trade routes because they're not it's not and this is where a question comes at um, um mm-hmm. because it would be more coming out of Yoruba land um, uh, of agricultural and again that glass beads as trade mm-hmm. items um, mm-hmm. uh, that now becomes decimated because mm-hmm. of the drought. Would that be a fair statement? Well, it would be a fair statement, but it is also the case that as in, in the aftermath of the drought, societies were trying to rebuild themselves mm-hmm. in the 16th century. They were trying to rebuild themselves. Before the drought, commodity production was the basis of generating wealth. Trade was the basis of generating wealth. Now, the Yoruba thought that they would still use the old way of life to build wealth. After all, they would make cloth. So they were manufacturing cloth. And initially, in the 15th century, in the 16th century, Yoruba cloth, was being sold, manufactured uh, cloth, textiles, were being imported as far as Brazil and, and New Amsterdam, which is now New York. Yoruba products were going all the way there, cloth. But with the beginning of plantation economy in the Americas, mm. with Virginia, with Brazil, what they needed from Africa was no longer cloth and ivory. And glass. It was people that they needed people. So suddenly, Africans realized that their commodities had no value in the global economy. Europeans were coming, they were not demanding for cloth anymore, they were demanding for people. So their products had no value in the global market. People became the, 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 the commodity that had value. And this is how. Atlantic slave trade, the perniciousness of the Atlantic slave trade really took off because people were left <laughs> basically wondering what is happening. 
We manufacture cloth, they have no value in the global market. We manufacture glass, it's no longer having, having any value. We have ivory to sell, we have iron to sell. No one was buying it. They wanted human cargo. Now, for a society that was trying to recover and who did not want to be the victim, then some people began to engage in slave trading. So before, when they captured captives, they would bring them to their city and they would become dependents, not slaves. They, were, they had rights within a generation. In fact, some of them can become the, a, a, a chieftain in their city. Their children could aspire to become somebody. So now these, some of these captives were now being sold into the Atlantic trade. You know, that is the, that, that is the uh, I, I hope I'm making myself clear here. That is the, the, the path in which Africa was sucked into the Atlantic slave trade. It is that the commodity that they used to produce no longer had value in the global market. And now and they needed that wealth to build, to, to recover, to build a society. And now that commodity was no longer in demand. Human beings became the source of demand. Now, we should not forget, too, that this is part of a global process whereby Europeans were also being captured in North Africa in the, as late as 17th century and enslaved in Morocco, in Algeria. It was a global re, re, uh, restructuring of labor. There was labor shortage globally. And, and when that... oh, excuse me, go ahead. I apologize. Yeah. So many European captives ended up in Morocco, in Algeria, where Muslims enslaved them as well. <laughs> so, so, the, so, and then Africa became uh, 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 the, the focus of the Atlantic slave trade because that was the source of uh, uh, labor for the Americas, uh, from Virginia all the way to Brazil. So that is the path into, into, into Atlantic slave trade in, uh, in Africa. And 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 um and I wanted to, to tie uh, uh tie maybe three things together and and hopefully I'll be um, cogent in it because I'm thinking of where um, glass beads as you mentioned the 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 commodities now change and they they, they don't have the same value and mm-hmm. um, the introduction of the quarry shell and that's a, a point of clarification I wanted to get is quarry quarries are as a as a as a what's that a currency mm-hmm. is now becomes a value um yes. to say um oyo as a empire and then definitely dahomey and and, mm-hmm. and mentioning that dahomey mm-hmm. as a social organizational structure to protect itself in what mm-hmm. is going on is becoming mm-hmm. more militarized and, yes. and that's why it's able to um be able to protect its protect itself. Um, yes. um and and then the third element um I see that there is um up in the the north northern um that the Sokoto um jihad mm-hmm. as far as the of, of African Muslims who mm-hmm. are having challenges with Muslims, you know, because of the religion being um, sold into the trade and the jihad mm-hmm. 
as a as a mechanism to try to prevent that um, mm-hmm. Muslim selling Muslims into the slave trade. Is mm-hmm. those three elements um, would that be correct to say they had a major impact in relationship to the glo- uh, the um, Yoruba land global um, integration? Now that integration changes from being internal to external, more the external um, affecting the internal, if that makes sense. Mm. Hopefully I'm yeah. sense. Let me try and put all of those things together. Now, first of all, let me say that Sokoto Jihad, or the jihadist movement in, uh, in uh, West Africa, which began in the late uh, 18th century and continues in the early 19th century, it was a product again of turmoil that already began previously, yes. you know, uh, in, in, in the 14th century. It was a continuation. But that itself only intensified slavery in Africa. It did not reduce it. It intensified slavery in Africa, the jihadist movement, because non-Muslims were seen as, according to Islamic law, Mm-hmm. Non-Muslims, it was it was okay to enslave them. Unfortunately, many Muslims were also being enslaved. It was just in theory. But let me go back to European trade. What they were exchanging for the for the for the human cargo they were taking away from Africa. Uh, yes, I wrote I wrote an article some many years ago, which I think is possibly my most popular article on cowrie shells. Cowrie, you see, Europeans did not have any manufactured products to really pay for what they were taking away from Africa. They did not have it. So what they were doing was they were going to Maldives Islands, which is in the, in the Indian Ocean, to bring cowries. So cowrie was an important uh, a currency that they were using to batter for human cargo in West Africa. And those cowries were used as currency in West Africa so that the, uh, the, almost the whole of West Africa was in one currency zone in the, 17th, sorry, in the 16th through 19th century, the, from, 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 from Sierra Leone all the way to Nigeria. You could travel with cowries and you will be able to trade. Now, however, I have in my book that what really made Atlantic slave trade to thrive in West Africa, we always focus on weapons and the commodities. It was really tobacco. Mm. Tobacco financed the slave trade in West Africa. Especially, sorry, especially in the Battle of Benin, where where or Yoruba Daomi kingdoms are located, it was addiction to tobacco that made Atlantic slave trade thrive, leading to more than one million people being sold from the Battle of Benin. It was not any other thing; it was tobacco addiction, and we, we as as descendants of Africa, we need to, to be aware how addiction continues to make us victims of, of, the, of global economy. 
This addiction was important. It was the main finance, source of finance of slave trade in the Battle of Benin. Most Africans who left the Battle of Benin between present-day Nigeria and, and, and Côte d'Ivoire, they were, they were paid for. I mean, the, uh, tobacco was the, was the commodity that were used to exchange for them. And this story has not been told at all. I mentioned it in my book, but we need more researchers talking about this. Because tobacco was the main source of finance. So the addiction to tobacco made it possible for European slave ships to continue to come in, and one person was exchanged for 12 rolls of tobacco. That is what powered slave trade in this region for at least 150 years. Are you there? Mm, yes. I was, I was thinking, because I had just um, uh, seen, uh, we, me and Elliot we just went through a uh, presentation you did in talking about, or a segment of it, and talking about the pipes that were um, um, used that was this, I guess, excavated, you know, where this tobacco um, were, was smoked in. So, um, you know, that, 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 that is, uh, you know, as you say, it's not, um, you know, not usually said, and I'm glad that you did bring in about the, um, you know, how the, 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 that now, or this, the question that comes. So is the tobacco coming from, um, America, which is a large, like Virginia. Is, oh, uh, no. It's coming mostly from Brazil. Brazil, okay. Yeah, Brazil. Brazilian tobacco specialist, yeah. So that, okay. that was part of the triangle, so to speak, the triangle. Um, yes. Okay, good. Yes. Okay. You know, we, we, what we're going to do, we're going to take a brief break, and when we come back, uh, it should be questions from the audience on this particular topic. <laughs> and you could do that by dialing 215-490-9832. That's 215-490-9832. We're in conversation with author, professor of Africana Studies, Anthropology, and History at the University of North Carolina, Charlotte, Dr. Akin Ugundrian. Again, you can join the conversation by dialing 215-490-9832. We'll be right back. Brother Richard, on Time for an Awakening Media, part of the Black Talk Radio Network. For podcasting or live program scheduling, hit them up at timeforanawakening at gmail.com. 
All Insurance Incorporated, an African-American owned and operated insurance agency and business for over 20 years. Located at 231 Southeastern Road in Glenside, PA, with other offices in Germantown and West Philadelphia. Call now for commercial insurance quotes, homeowners insurance quotes, automobile insurance quotes, notary and tax services, representing over 15 major A-rated insurance companies, offering a discount on all notary services when you call in for a free quote. Call this number, 215-885-2444. That number is 215-885-2444. 215-885-2444. All Insurance Incorporated. Electrical Inspections provides electrical inspections for realtors, licensed electricians, and homeowners. Licensed and insured underwriter, serving Philadelphia and surrounding area. Call today, 484-268-9837. the digital plantation. Abibitumi.com, Abibitumi.tv, Abibitumi.tv.com, Abibitumi.store are here for you. You are ready to be free of non-African social media. Don't run from danger, run to safety. Abibitumi.com is here for you. You are ready to be free of digital plantations to control your own products. Abibitumi.store is here for you. A-B-I-B-I-T-U-M-I, Black Power, A-B-I-B-I-T-U-M-I. The only word you need to know to join your global you Black family to join your interconnected commit to you black communities escape the digital plantation now abibitumi.com abibitumi.tv abibitumitv.com abibitumi.store we are here for you escape the digital plantation a new era a new phase of the struggle where we have moved from a struggle for decency which characterized our struggle for 10 or 12 years to a struggle for genuine equality. And this is where we're getting the resistance because there was never any intention uh, to go this far. People were reacting to Bull Connor and to Jim Clark rather than acting in good faith for the realization of genuine equality. Do you think white people in this country, and I'm talking about non-segregation, as people devoid thinking they're devoid of racism. Do you have any idea of what they want the Negro to be in America? I think the vast majority of white Americans uh, will go but so far. It's a kind of installment plan for equality. And uh, they are always looking for an excuse uh, to go but so far. And know that this problem needs to be solved and we can't keep relegating it to generation after generation because a few of us got a little money, a few of us got positions, a few of us have wealth while the masses of our people are going steadily down. No one man can rise above the condition of his people. See, brother said responsibility. Is it, is it that we should let them take responsibility to do for us, or should we pool the knowledge that's at the table, the power that's in our community, 
the wealth that's in our community to change the harsh reality of black life in America. We have to do the job of fulfilling the black agenda. Thank you. Whites are expert game players in their contests to maintain absolute power. One of the time-honored gimmicks is to point to individual blacks who've achieved recognition. But look at Ralph Bunch. Think about Lena Horne or Marian Anderson. Look at Jackie Robinson. They made it as one of those who has made it. I would like to be thought of as an inspiration to our young, but I don't want them lied to. Name them for me. The examples of blacks who made it. For virtually everyone you name, I can give you a sordid piece of factual information on how they have been mistreated, humiliated. Not being able to fight back is a form of severe punishment. I come here tonight and plead with you. Believe in yourself and believe that you're somebody. As I said to the group last night, nobody else can do this for us. No document can do this for us. No Lincolnian Emancipation Proclamation can do this for us. No Kennesonian or Johnsonian Civil Rights Bill can do this for us. If the Negro is to be free, he must move down into the inner resources of his own soul and sign with a pen and ink of self-assertive manhood his own Emancipation Proclamation. Let anybody take your manhood. Time for an Awakening is a proud part of the Black Talk Radio Network, the number one independent black digital and podcasting platform. Welcome back to Time for an Awakening. It's 8.47 on the Sunday edition of Time for an Awakening. Our guest this evening, Arthur professor of Africana Studies, Anthropology, and History at the University of North Carolina, Charlotte. Dr. Akin Ogundrian is with us this evening talking about West Africa, both pre- and post-colonial. A lot of information coming from the editor-in-chief of the African Archaeological Review. You can join this conversation with a question or comment by dialing 215-490-9832. That's 215-490-9832. Uh, Dr. Akin, um, yes. I, 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 in your book, and I just want to read uh, uh, something that I, I saw in there to uh, kind of get you to uh, expand a little bit of this on the discussion. You talked about the Atlantic slave trade and you gave the dates uh, from mm-hmm. 1600 to 1640. Changed the political, mm-hmm. the social, and ideological uh, structure. Mm-hmm of the state and household on the continent of the state and household. Mm-hmm. You said mm-hmm. as a result of this cataclysmic breakdown of the social order between mm-hmm. class inequalities, social mm-hmm. differences and relationships mm-hmm. between individuals and groups. And the outcome mm-hmm. was intra elite conflicts, mm-hmm. underclass revolts, 
mm-hmm. in male predation and female vulnerability. Talk about yeah. all of those things because the results of this, the results mm-hmm. of this is what I'm trying to focus on because I think that we're still living out these results present day. Yeah. But but talk about it from the perspective of uh, our history and before we came or was being transported to this continent. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. Yeah, this is uh, when I was writing those words, I was shaking myself mm-hmm. <laughs> because when you study history uh, with the purpose of making sure that your people understand where they're coming from so that they can, ex- so that they can understand why we are where we are. Because see, one of the challenges we have in Africa is that following slavery, following the slave trade, Europeans then colonized Africa. And what they did was they deliberately, and, I, and I'm going to emphasize this, they deliberately tried to make that period in African history something that we did to ourselves. Oh, Dr. Gundry, can you repeat that? Yeah. <laughs> European colonists who came to Africa, who colonized Africa in the 19th century, the way they presented Atlantic slavery to us is that we did it to ourselves, and Africans did it to themselves. So they basically tried to knock it out of our memory. And, and, and therefore, they were able to establish a new, a new intellectual process that, I would argue, rearranged our brain in Africa. And I'm being very, I'm not being dramatic, I'm, 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 I'm being emphatic there, okay? They, they basically rearranged us in Africa so that we, so that they, can, they, we don't have to make them accountable and then we are not able to make ourselves accountable in Africa. So the problem we have today in Africa as well as in other places in the black world is because we have not accounted for what happened to us between 1500 and 1850, which was the period of the, of the Atlantic slave trade. This period destroyed many parts of Africa. It destroyed our value system. It destroyed our religion. It destroyed our morality, our sense of morality. It destroyed our political system. And not, not I think that is not in, enough, Europe came and colonized Africa. So we are suffering from amnesia. We are suffering from lack of understanding of where we are coming from. The, this period, I mean, you can, when, when you have more than 15 million living in a place, more than 15 million, I'm not counting those who died, who perished in Africa as a result of the Atlantic slave trade. Millions. More than 50 million also perished in Africa, died. Okay? When you combine the figures together, you're talking about 10, I mean, about 40 million people either sold into slavery or died in Africa. How is it possible for that kind of place not to have been negatively affected? by the consequences of what was going on. Of course, Africa was affected negatively. And it led to a social breakdown of order. It led to 
uh, 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 people were raised, but at the same time, people were asking questions in Africa. They were debating among themselves. So it was not it was not in Europe where the idea of enlightenment, the idea of freedom began. No, people who are who are suffering, who are going through this trauma, they were asking questions. What does it mean to be a person? If that person can be exchanged for a bucket of courage, what does it mean to be a person? If that person can be if a person can be exchanged for eight rolls of tobacco. They were having this dialogue, this debate in Africa. And until we begin to recover our voice, recover those debates, we will not be able to understand why Africa is suffering today and why many people in the African diaspora are also depressed. Because we need to account for what happened. There were there were there were there were ancestors who have no who are not buried properly. There were parents who disappeared. We don't know their grief side. That is un-African. These are traumas that we are still going through. And that's trauma, we need to talk about it, as we are doing now on your program. We need to account for it. Not to blame ourselves to the point that we can no longer take any action, but to learn from the past. And say that never again, right? Yes, Dr. Ken, <laughs> let, let me go back because I, this, what you're just saying, can't be stressed uh, enough. You mm-hmm. and I'm not even talking about discussions here. Let's put that off to the side because in conversations that our people have here, and I'm talking about general conversations, I'm not talking about absolutes. The general mm-hmm. conversation that our people have here is. Well, Africans know what they did. They sold us here, and it's an animosity between blacks in the diaspora, especially in the United States, and looking at continental Africans. Let's, let's put that conversation to the side right now. As a man that grew up on the continent and that, that, that has been educated and is giving back, you're saying that the, the, the indoctrination that happened on the continent is that you did this to yourself. Yes. That you sold Africans. I mean, mm-hmm. you sold your brothers. So mm-hmm. you're saying it's a debate going on now on the continent about not only who's at fault, but what we can do about it. Is that what you're just saying? That's what I'm just saying. And I'm also saying that as this was happening in the 16th, 17th, 18th century, Africans were also debating themselves. They were also hiding, and that led to rebellions in Africa. Some of those rebellions were against slavery. Some of those rebellions were coming from people who had been oppressed in Africa. People who were descendants, I mean, who used to believe that they are manifestations of the deity, and now they were reduced to mm. chattel slavery. So those people were asking questions, and they were, and they were rebe- rebelling. So it is in the middle of that social dysfunction that Europe came in in the 19th century and then finished off the business. What that means is that we colonized the entire continent. And therefore, we, were, we, we couldn't raise any questions until they left. Because they gave us a different education system, 
they, they gave us a different language, which our which the parents did not understand. So you pull out the children, you put them in the body house, you train them, basically rearrange them. So they don't even know where they're coming from. Those people became the leaders of post-independence, post-colonial Africa. Oh, wow. They don't know where they're coming from. They don't know who they are. <laughs> they have been reschooled. They have been rearranged. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, 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 and therefore, only a few of them knew what was happening. And that was people like uh, Kwame Nkrumah. They knew what was happening. But, but what happened to them? Those people who knew, who were conscious, they were removed from power by agents of the West. It is no longer a secret that CIA was involved in many coups that happened in Africa in the 1960s, 1970s, because people who are conscious are good for Africa, but they are dangerous for the West. And those people were either killed (laughs) or they they were sent back from power. So... These are the stories, though. This is the consciousness that Africans need to have, the consciousness that African-Americans need to have, the consciousness that African diaspora people need to have, so that we can realize that we must work together as brothers and sisters to liberate African and black people in the world. Um, you cannot rely on, on, on your oppressors for your liberation. It's not possible. Mm. <laughs> it's not possible. So, so we, that's why we need to re, re, uh, reinvigorate the, the Pan-Africanist vision of W.E.B. Du Bois and many other leaders. You know, we need to get back to that Pan-Africanism. Richard, I know you. I know you're ready to jump in there. Go ahead, Richard. No, no. When you when you your the exchange was about um, Europeans, um, you know, um, characterizing, you know, the the point of that Africans, what Africans did to themselves more than mm-hmm. you know, it, it just not what maybe a month ago um, when uh, Elizabeth passed. Um, Don Lemon, the uh, black journalist, asked mm-hmm. a European um, representative about reparations, and mm-hmm. she responded in, in, to, with, in the f- same context that you just mentioned, that, well, why should we when Africans sold Africans into slavery, in the sense of placing the blame um, mm-hmm. wholeheartedly? Mm-hmm. But I, I, mm-hmm. I agree that it's on us and, and, and this, in, this, in this moment to do just like what we're doing to kind of um, raise up. Um, mm-hmm. and, and it's only because of people like yourself. I, I have to say that um, doing now, having the ability to do and having the will to do the field research. Yes. Yeah. Yes. To be able to put together um, from your own excavation uh, mm-hmm. and interpretation based off of facts of what mm-hmm. happened when we're talking about close to three to 200 years uh, intensely um, misinterpreting the historical narrative of even just the slave trade. And you're taking, and they weren't even talking about African social formation, knowledge production, or, 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 you know, social organizational development. We ain't even talking about that. Just what happened over the last 500 years, that, even is just sifting out of these institutions just recently 
but there's need for more people like yourself doing that kind of work in order to get clarity um, and centeredness from our own of how this really worked out. Yeah, thank you, thank you, thank you. And and we need more more younger people to to right. get involved, especially African American uh, young people need to get involved in studying African history. You know, because if they do, a, a movie that claims to be a historical representation of Daomi, uh, the Woman King, will not have been made. Right. This is the Daomi is the most written about kingdom in West Africa. It's the most, yet, we have uh, a fiction being presented to us as history. To me, that means that nothing has changed. <laughs> you know, so, so, and then we, are, some of us are celebrating it. Yeah, we can celebrate the cinematography. That's great. But this is not history. If you rely on, on, on Hollywood to write your history, something's wrong. Yes. Something's wrong. <laughs> okay? <laughs> Let Never me, lied. <laughs> let me let me go to four 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 question or comment for I guess four four. Ah uh, yes sir, good good show man. I'm just listening. But uh, Richard, I I sent y'all something about a brother. I think his name William Steele. Okay, uh, I I don't want to change the subject, but that brother was a bad dude, man. Y'all know about Harry Tubman. This brother free eight hundred different slaves right there in Philadelphia. You know about him, Richard? Yes. Okay, all right. Well, good show, man. I'm just listening, man. I ain't mean to change the flow, but good show. I'm listening, man. Appreciate it. Thank you for your contribution. Uh, Professor Ken, you mentioned the the movie, and uh, I I, I really didn't want to necessarily uh, focus in on the movie per se because I wanted you to give a historical overview of what was going on both pre- and post-colonial. But I don't know whether you saw the movie. Did did you see it? Yes, yes, I saw it. it. As a historian and somebody that has done the primary research, not somebody that watched videos or watched a movie or watched a documentary, Mm -hmm. somebody that have done Mm -hmm. the primary research, put his hands in the ground and put his mind to interpreting the things that he uncovered. What is some of the things that you see in there that the people need to understand? Well, uh, I think uh, people need to understand that Hollywood, and, and I say that I mean, not only Hollywood, uh, Libras, many Libras, black and white, <laughs> they will be the first to say that we need to know about black history. But I think they are not interested in black history. Yes. You see, because when you when this movie should not have been presented to the public as historical, <laughs> it's not. It is fiction. But unfortunately, many of our people have not read any book on African history. This is where they were going to get their history from, mm-hmm. and it does a lot of damage. A lot of damage to many years of work that many of us have been doing. Wow. We, are, we have moved beyond uh, and wrinklings. Oh, you know, this happened. No, no, no. At this point, we need to know the truth. And I'm not ashamed to say that, yes, African kingdoms like Oyo Empire that I study, where my ancestors come from, they engage in slavery. 
my own great great grandparents died or they were sold into slavery. We don't know where they are today. We don't know their burial site. We just know that they, we couldn't locate them. That's all we know. Mm. So whether they landed in Brazil, I don't know. Whether they died in Africa, I don't know. <laughs> but I need to know the story. I need to know the, the truth. Okay? So this movie presented Wyoming as a freedom fighting kingdom. It is just not a freedom fighting kingdom. Many of those women who are who are fighting for Wyoming, they were not freedom fighters. They were in fact most of them were captives. They were enslaved women, which Daomi used to enslave other people. Women, but that story is not in the story, it's not in the movie. All these, all these Agoji, these, these, these female warriors, almost all of them, their father, their husband, their son, their, their, uh, 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 their brother, they were sold into slavery by Daomi. And they retained the women because Atlantic slavery preferred men to women. So those people that they could not sell, they were usually women, they were retained and they were turned into killing machines to, to perpetuate slavery. This is the story. This is the fact that is missing in that story. We don't need this kind of movie if it's not going to tell us the truth. Hmm. <laughs> okay, so that is my that is my own brief uh, conclusion about it. It is a great cinematograph. It's great. I mean, I, I and I applaud all the all the actors and actresses for for, for, for what they have done. That is great, but it should have been, it should not be seen as telling the true story of Downey. Yes, it's fiction. Doctor, again, the um, the the because you've seen the women fighting there, and you mentioned that a lot of the women had been captives and forced to do that. Um, yes, the, the use of women fighters mm-hmm. uh, was that uh, 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 normal on the continent? Just from the cultural mores that I've, and I'm nowhere near no historian. I just read some of the works of men like yourself. Is that was that a part of any cultural mores that we had that women were supposed to be out there fighting battles, or was that was that a circumstance that was forced on our people during this period? It was something that that we created. It was not Af- it was not African. How is it possible that people who are going who the society depended upon to bring forth the new generation, you are going to expose them? Mm. So. So what fear? These are these are the bearers of the next generation. No other society in Africa engaged in this practice. Except, and the reason why it was possible for them to do that was because those women were dispensable. Their father, their husband, their son had been sold into slavery. They are, this, some of these women were even prevented from having children. So that they could serve, it's only after they retire that they were. No society in Africa will, will, will expose its women to this kind of, uh, <laughs> to, this, to warfare the way that we did. So that, this was a, a product of the Atlantic slave trade. Mm-hmm. As I said at the beginning of my presentation, I said Daomi was created by the Atlantic slave trade. 
there was nothing normal in the political system. Mm. It, it was thoroughly a product of the destabilization of that period, 17th and 18th century. That's a powerful point. Wow. <laughs> Richard, uh, you know, this conversation uh, uh, was needed. Um, it could be a lot of other things that we could throw in. You know what? Let me let me mention this because, Doctor Ken, you you're here, you're here, in the, and and you taught on the continent in several universities, but you're here at uh, North Carolina yeah. Charlotte. When you yeah. see, because I mean, your focus in bringing this this history to the to the fore, it's not so mm-hmm. it, so yeah. All people can see it and understand it, but. I, I derive from what you're saying that you really want our people to understand what we went through and the trauma that we went through and how we can mm-hmm. bring ourselves out of that trauma. When you mm-hmm. see here, because you already talked about on the continent, uh, yes. how this is, uh, 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 how this is talked about and taught, how it was taught mm-hmm. during, uh, 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 neocolonialism that all of this was your fault and how now mm-hmm. it's debates among, continental Africans about this particular subjects. When you see Mm -hmm. here in the continent, uh, here in the United States, the Mm -hmm. advent of CRT and other discussions Mm -hmm. to keep black people from talking about these subjects among one Mm -hmm. another, and especially on college campuses, what do you think Mm -hmm. about that type of, just give me your thoughts on that. (laughs) I mean, well, I know, as you know, I teach in, in Africana studies department. Uh, I, I used to be chair of the department. Actually, I was chair there for 10 and a half years. It is not possible to have an Africana studies department, black studies department, without talking about race, mm-hmm. history, and the legacies of slavery. It's not possible. So those people who are opposed to CRT, what they want us to do is to forget is to foster a sense of uh, forgetfulness, is to erase our presence in the Western Hemisphere, basically to erase black people. Because if you do not have a history, you do not have a culture, you are not present. You know, you are, you are invisible. And that, to me, it's a fundamental uh, persistence of racist thought. The same way African history was raised by European colonialists, those people who opposed CRT, they were trying to erase black experience. Right. They are trying to, and it's important for us to call them out for what they're doing. It's not about CRT. It's just, it's just a, 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 deplor- it's, it's a di- diversion. <laughs> what they were trying to do is to say, oh, you black people... You have no reason, no right to exist in this world. And therefore, we are going to erase your history. That's what they are trying to do. That's what they are trying to say. And there's no other nice way for me to say that these are anti-black rhetorics. <laughs> they are anti-black. Because if you do not take my history seriously, I have no reason to take you seriously. <laughs> okay? So that, that's what I will say to that. That's my response to the anti-CLT, the anti, anti-black, you know. Every, every racist discourse in this country always has its own intellectual component. So we, we must not forget that black 
anti-black lives matter, anti-black people, this anti-CLT is the intellectual handle of it. The same way that Jim Crow, Jim Crow laws have its intellectual side to it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> okay? So each time America goes, take one step forward, it takes two steps backward. And that's what we are seeing. Hmm. Richard, we're coming up to the end. Uh, I, I, did, did you have a couple more things you want to uh, kind of throw into the mix before no, we start? I, I think that we, we and, and again, you know, Dr. Ken, I, I really appreciate, but I, for me, um, I think that we really, um, you know, for this whole series of dealing with decoding the woman king, I think that we did um, with Dr. Uh, Dr. Ken's, um, you know, grand assistance, a real good understanding for the Time for Awakening audience of how the realities, the different perspectives, and um, the challenges we have right now. Um, with what y'all were just speaking to. This is, provides a challenge in relationship to not making Hollywood the arbitrator of history making no. mm-hmm. um, compared to, and, and even in this forum, having a dialogue, you know, where the learning process outside of the academy or with each other um, in a pan-Africanist way can actually occur. I think that this is healthy and and has um, more um, beneficial to where we are now because it's a geopolitical, it's a power reality, a global power reality that's being put in play with this here. And I think that what we just did is, you know, excellent in and of itself, if I may Um, say so. so. Yes. May may I add one more thing, please? Certainly. Yes. uh, I'm going to use this platform to call on our brothers and sisters who have the money, who have the talent to do more in telling our story. Okay? Uh, We have people, (laughs) among ourselves, we have resources, intellectuals, people, money, to tell our story. In the platform, maybe, that new generation wants, the the screen is certainly one of the media we can use. It's not just books that we can use to teach ourselves about what happened in the past, about our history, but we need more people coming forward to really invest in true, accurate stories about black experience. Mm. True, true, true that. And and if I may add, and also invest in um, people like yourself, and especially, as you say, younger people, to be able to go and do that kind of field research, because it ain't cheap. And it is important. Um, and these people who are putting up the money all the time, they're being selective in relationship mm-hmm. to the projects. So yeah. I, I would add both of those are very important. I agree. Mm-hmm. Yes. Thank you. Before we leave, uh, uh, Dr. Ken, you mentioned that you, you'll be speaking at Cornell University. But t- just uh, kind of give us a little itinerary, just in case somebody's in the area or they might have children or whatever that, that okay. Yes, uh, yes. Pl- um, I'm not and, sure whether they will have a, a Zoom component to this meeting. It's going to be face-to-face. And uh, really, uh, what I will be talking about is the little SH and the unfinished process of recovery in West Africa. So basically, the first, what we discussed in the first half of our, of our show 
that's what I'll be elaborating on that. Mm-hmm. How the little ice age, this climatic change uh, affected Africa and really uh, limited our ability to confront and to challenge Atlantic slavery the way we should have if there was no breakdown of social structure before it started. So that's what I would, I'm going to talk about. That is so powerful. That is, mm-hmm. And again, this environmental one, I mean, we hear about the Black Plague. We hear about these environmental things that happen um, in, in, in Europe, but we mm-hmm. don't hear about the environmental, you know, um, happenings, you know, these devastating environmental happenings or even plagues that may yeah. have had impact yeah. on social yeah. structures um, and their development at any particular time. Um, mm-hmm. which uh, th- those things are important because of the technologies that were developed. And again, looking at social organization as a technology, how mm-hmm. we related to each other was something yes. intentional, um, not something that just happened by yes, evolutionary, right. you know, um, you know, forces. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, correct. Yeah. Dr. Akin, uh, when did you say that that uh, conference would be in at Cornell? Yeah, it's not. It's not a conference. Actually, I was being invited to give a talk wow. on on my book, and then I chose that topic. Uh, the title is "The Little Ice Age and the Your Empire." Would would I would finished process of recovery. What mm-hmm. I would like to do, if you don't mind, I'd I'd like to uh, air that on Time for an Awakening uh, uh, Media. Uh, if if I could get the link, well, we'll talk about it because I would like to get the information yeah, from you. Link with you. I will. Great. Great. Yeah. I want to yeah. thank you for being with us. Oh, any new books coming down the the uh, in the pipeline? <laughs> well, I'm still I'm still celebrating this book. Okay. <laughs> and I'm doing the new I'm doing the new research now, and I welcome uh, African American brothers and sisters who want to join me on my on my expeditions. I do this every year. I go back to Africa every year to do the discovery to do archaeological research. Oh, that's and great! I want young people to be involved. You know, so you, you know, I might so, have to, I might have to get in touch with you about that because I just did my DNA search and my DNA comes out of that area, Benin, Togo, and that area. That is, that is, that is great. <laughs> That's great. Yeah. I just want to mention again, the book um, is the Yoruba: A New History. Uh, again, I mean, for anyone who, not even if you're not interested, just put it on, get it, put it on your shelf because someone <laughs> who is this interested will find that this, I mean, it's really, uh, it's really done well in relationship to academic scholarship and giving a broad, I, 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 as I, I got many tags in this um, book um, um, before, and believe me, it was because I was on Clubhouse that your book was mentioned. Oh, yeah. The reason yeah. why I went and purchased it because of this discussion among some, mm-hmm. you know, there. So uh, um, it's important for us to um, support um, Dr. Ken and and his work, so he can continue to do work um, uh, and field work. I want to thank you for being with us, sir, and I'll be in touch. Okay, thank you so much for having me. Talk to you okay. soon. Okay. Take care now. Bye. Bye. Richard. Yes. Interesting discussion, man. And you know, Richard, let me let me say this because we talked about this in private conversation. You know, Dr. Ken talked about the trauma that happened to our people that is basically being swept 
under the rug. Uh, blame is being put. Now he mentioned this. I didn't. I didn't really know about this. Uh, I think uh, attorney uh, Deirdre Farmer Pellman kind of alluded to it when she was on mm-hmm. about the people knowing certain things about their ancestors, but they didn't talk about it. You remember what she did, right. what she said, mm-hmm. Richard? Now, um, Dr. Ken talked about the debates that's going on now. Yes, it is. On the continent about this. And the way it's being spun by former European colonizers. Now, the United States is not there, per se, that has influence on those governments. That was directly European governments. That's telling them, uh, well, we didn't have nothing. That was you. Your folks did it. And the same type of conversation is being had here mm-hmm. where some of our people are blaming the blame game of people, people that have been traumatized, blaming one another. Yeah. Yeah. And, and you know, Elliot, I, I was trying to um, hold back on this thought and, and it's been consistent over other dialogues. Um, when we put this in a, a a power context, in a geopolitical power context, what is happening in my mind, even with um, CRT, or um, are these films that are coming out that are, you know, um, as you notice, everyone said um, that the cinematography of the film was excellent, the imagery. So if you don't have a historical background, you can't have an analysis. All you can say is either what you see is true or that it looked good um, and it and it excited you, right, as, as a film being a part of history. But when we look at all of this is to Africa has the youngest population, a continent with the youngest population on the planet right now, mm-hmm. right? Um, African-Americans have a, a it's, it's, it's unsettled. Again, this generation is unsettled um, to where it can once again um, call for ties of of a global African um, point of view, a pan-African or whatever. But what is the entity? What is this bringing that the Africans are internally saying, well, we need to be tied to the West or uh, African-Americans are saying we are Americans. We're no we're not Africans. You know, um, and that who the who benefits from that? Who benefits from that? Well, the same people who created this dynamics over the last five hundred years benefit from it. But their their orientation now isn't going to school or teaching uh, Christian catechism about um, religious. The teaching now is we're going to give you the imagery that you're of your African past even of your enslavement past, but we are going to construct the narrative. Yep. <laughs> My goodness. Wow. Because y'all ain't interested. Mm. That's, it's, and, and, and that's, that's what we're fighting. Once again, we're fighting up against. And, and we're and- not losing because um, just having this discussion these over this past month, um, as a catalyst for this movie is what everyone should have been doing, right? To provide different perspectives, a historical framework, and we can walk away and say, this was truly propaganda. It wasn't a historical narrative. Yeah, well, you, listen, you heard what 
a man that has done the research, put his hands in the soil, wrote several books. You heard what he said about it, Richard. So mm-hmm. how can I debate or, or disagree with him? I can't. But I did notice something. And, you know, we talked about this here on the program. Listen, just for me reading about the culture of our ancestors, and I ain't nowhere near no historian. I just read a little bit. And, and I don't need, I read a little bit compared to you, Richard. And I didn't see anywhere in our culture where this was prevalent. It, women yeah. out there fighting. You know what I mean? It, right. it just didn't match up with the culture of the people. I ain't talking about the disruption, the disruptive culture. I'm talking about the original culture of those peoples in those areas. It never matched up. I knew something was wrong. Well, you just heard what he said. That homie was a creation of the slave trade. Wow. As a social organization. That's that's powerful. That's powerful. That's, that's powerful. powerful. And that's what I'm concerned about. But, but wait a minute, Richard. Of us but, in North America. When people have seen this movie, per se, they think that, you know, the homie was, that's what was going on on the continent. Mm-hmm. It was total dysfunction. People selling one another. But see that image, listen, Richard, these images are powerful. And it's all about capturing the minds of our youth. They ain't really worried about capturing your mind, my mind, or maybe some of the listeners to this program. It's directed at the youth. Because just say, for example, Richard, 200 years from now, I got my own visions about this. I don't think the system's going to be around, to be honest. These, these weaker systems, they fail. All you got to do is look at history. They're not around long. You heard with the, uh, 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 professor, uh, uh, Chaba said on the program about the relationship that when he drew the parallel between Greco, Greece, mm-hmm. Rome, and here. Mm-hmm. But just say, for example, 200 years from now, our descendants look at, use the, the, the video or television, if it's around, to look at what's going on here, mm-hmm. knowing that this is a Western society. What will they see, Richard? Now, mm-hmm. I'm giving an example because I've seen this is the political season and I've seen a bunch of these political commercials. You don't watch television. Now I watch it and you can't help from seeing it. Now I don't know what the political commercials are in other parts of the country, but here in Pennsylvania, that's all they showing. Mm-hmm. Violence is off the hook and all of the little images that they're showing is young blacks out there firing guns. And then when it shows the people, people cowering in fear, it'll show white people, white couples, a white women with children, a white family. Look at these images, violent images of blacks shooting, killing one another. Look at what the system has done by pumping crack and cracking even the drug of choice now. Mm-hmm. But in the 80s, when they pumped crack into these neighborhoods, look at the generational damage it did. But when you got our people that look at these white narratives, they blame one another for this foolishness. Mm-hmm. Isn't that the same thing going on when we look at the, the enslavement of our ancestors? Yeah. We blaming one another. When some of our people were stupid, guilty pawns in this foolishness. Look at this stuff, this dope dope selling in these communities. They're not aliens from another planet. They're your nephews. They're your sons. They're your husbands. 
They're your cousins. Are they evil? What they're doing is evil. But that's all I'm saying, Richard. They talk mm-hmm. about some of these people that participate in the slave trade like they were some evil demons from somewhere else. Mm-hmm. Or that everybody was doing it on the continent, selling blacks here to this country. When they were pawns by Europeans that had guns and, and, and wanted stuff from the continent, wanted uh, human capital. And our people became pawns, some willing, some not. You heard the man say that vagabonds was used in the beginning by Europeans. People that had been outcasts from the communities for stuff that they had done. I mean, did, I mean, did, did he say that, Richard? I don't, you know, yeah. I don't want to yes, make a mistake. And they yeah. went back and wreaked havoc on the communities that threw them out because of their actions. He mentioned about rape of a woman or things like that. Being that other people didn't have any jails, they, the, the people would become outcasts. They threw them out. Your family and all, you were excommunicated. So the historian that wrote several books on that area said that the Europeans, the Portuguese, first used people that were vagabonds to attack the communities that they were from. And they made sure that they was well-armed. I'll put it that way. Mm. So I'm just saying, Richard, you know, if we if we look back, we've been critical of our brothers and sisters that, that did this. All we got to do is look now. Look now at this crap going on in these cities. And the people that's involved in it. They're not from Mars. They're not from another planet. They're from your family. Your nephews. Maybe your nieces, your sons, your husbands, your brother, they're doing this. Some of them is doing this. But if you let the media tell it, all black people is doing it. Mm. They're doing this for a reason, Richard. They're drawing this narrative for a reason. Yes, yes. But we got to do what we got to do. Let me grab this call before we get, wind it up, Richard. Let's go to 602. 602. Yes, good brothers. Good evening, brother Marcus here. Hey, sir. I'm doing great, man. I like what the, I like what the professor, what the doctor say, you know. Conversation was was good. I mean, it, it, and it's good that, you know, our people are going back and doing the historical research, as him say ourselves doing it so we can get with the truth of what's going on. Now our our maybe I look pivot a little bit to Mr. Kanye West. Go ahead. If I can divulge a little bit. Now I don't agree with everything Kanye West do. But we do that statement he make to them people as I watched the whole interview, the whole hundred every Piers Morgan interview. You know, what he said about those people, those Jewish people is true. You know, and I, I do agree with him. I stand with him on this this, you know, the, you know, because what he made there, as you see, he gonna get that he gonna get hit for him. But I, you know what I think what's happening these Jews probably figuring, okay, the the black community probably abandoned abandoned Kanye. So <laughs> let us pounce on him. 
but it may backfire. Because as you say, yeah, Brother Elliot, Kanye is our family. He's our brother, right? He's our just, you know, he's, you know, so we embrace Kanye West free and bring him back into the family because, you know, what he said about those people is true. And what he suggested at the end of that interview was, look, he was looking for 60 black engineers to get and fill for his company because he had some tech companies and stuff like that. And he was looking for 60 black engineers because those Jews abandoned him. Now they say, okay, you make the same, boom, they, 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 they pull out the intellect out of the program. So he's talking. What I see in him, I think he's growing psychologically he's trying you know and he's getting there so i'm willing to stand with the brother and what he said about these people you know what he suggested to you know just i just wanted to impart that but what that doctor say what he said this season you know and that is new history that is that is you know so it's it's always you know it's always something new coming out of Africa. It's something new always comes out of Africa. Let, let, wait a minute, brother, brother Marcus. Before you go, let me say something in reference to what you said, because you said he's our brother and we need to reach out to him. No, now, no, 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 no. Yes, we reach out to him. I said I think he's trying to find his way back. back. To okay. The black community. Okay. Okay. Now let, I let, think he's trying to. No, not we reach out to him. He got to find his way, way back. back. Okay. But now, I think he's trying to make that transition. Now, now let me say something in reference to that because I agree with what you just stated. In fact, this last time, see, it, it's three things that happened. First, he did that interview with who was that? Um, the guy from Fox. I think he did that first interview with Pierce him. Morgan, Pierce Morgan. Okay, he did. And, and, and I think he, yeah. the guy published some things that were supposed to have been off the record. Oh. Okay. And, he, and he published okay. some remarks. Okay. So they okay. didn't say certain Jewish, populist uh, Jewish folks had made reference to his remarks. and mm-hmm. But they didn't do anything. They didn't take action. Then he went on this mm-hmm. show. It was a podcast, Take the Drink or Pass the Drink or something like that. Yeah. Yeah. He mm-hmm. went on he went mm-hmm. on there and made some statements. Then it was mm-hmm. a little more rumbling. Each time he made statements that wasn't detrimental to anybody. But the thing is, the mm-hmm. the people that call themselves Jews don't want you saying nothing about them. You know, exactly. it's like an old saying among the black community. Keep my name out of your mouth. You heard you heard yeah. of, well, that's what that's that's basically they want black folks to keep their name out of your yes. mouth. Yes. Now he went he went on to take yep. a he went on to take a drink. What is it? Drink champs. Oh, that's what the, the brother Otis put, yes. put in the thing. He went on to drink champs and made more statements. And then Monday mm-hmm. he was interviewed by Rolling Out. This this guy interviewed him on mm-hmm. Rolling Out. And when he made those statements in Rolling Out. That's when they came against him. The Adidas cut out their thing. They kicked him out of this Asian uh, talent agency. And uh, I think he tried to go into Skechers or something a couple of days later, and they physically put him out of there, the security. But in that last, well, interv- you know, in that last interview, Brother Marcus, mm-hmm. that last interview mm-hmm. that he did with this rolling out, I think, he stated, he said, uh, I've lost my family. I've lost my children. 
and I, I lost the black community. Yeah. So now I yeah. think that he's, I think he's realizing, even though he didn't had erratic behavior, he wearing Black Lives Matter shirts with Candace Owens and uh, mm-hmm. trashing Kwanzaa. He trashed oh. uh, 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 Harriet Tubman. He said that black people yeah. was here by choice. All types of stupid statements that he made. I think he started mm-hmm. to realize he made a mistake. Yep. 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 So we gonna yep. we gonna see how mm-hmm. we gonna see how it's gonna play out. Now, yesterday yes. they attacked again a uh, Kyrie Irving. Yes, they attacked him. Yep, they attacked him. Yep. But see, Irving, Irving is a little bit different. Yep. Irving is a little bit different than Kanye West. Irving is a lot. Well, I don't want to uh, try to gauge anybody's intelligence. Put it this way Irving handles the media better than Kanye West. Okay, okay. If you've seen that press conference when that guy was trying to put him on the spot, he basically put mm. the, him on the spot and other media mm. people that wanted to question him on what he b- had been posting. Mm-hmm. One thing that Kanye said, what, 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 what he said on the interview, he said, what about my pain? What about the pain I've been feeling? He said, I put out one tweet and it, it caused so much pain. But what about the pain? I've been feeling. Me and my people been feeling. You know what I'm saying? So, so you see, yeah, he, he realizing that he, you know he got to he got to come home. He got to come home, man. You know, I think he, I think he, 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 he trying to get here. You know, when I know he went and met with Nick Cannon, and Nick Cannon, I think he a Hebrew Israelite, more stuff. You know, I don't know, but you know, probably got a little. Little, little, you know, life from him. So you know, and you know the funny thing about it, brother Marcus. Before, mm-hmm. I, before I let you go, um, mm-hmm. the things that he asserted about the control of black folks and things like that. After this incident happened, the actions of some of these groups have only proved what he said. For example, Wells mm-hmm. Fargo Bank. I think they d- yeah. disassociate themselves with him. Yeah. Uh, yeah. This talent agency, who I think he was part owner, or whatever, he did basically kicked mm-hmm. him out. Uh, the brand that he had with the sneaker company, they threw him out, mm-hmm. and I don't think he can't even use the name anymore. So they got control over all of that. They uh, mm-hmm. the Blackster was involved in that talent agency with him, Jalen Brown of the Boston Celtics, and the lineman for the Rams. They got it. They got mm-hmm. them to criticize him. The, the guy that was on the podcast that he was on the drink champ, he told me, oh, I don't I, I disassociate myself. He, they got him to, to basically disavow him. So they always use that same tactic to try to publicly eviscerate other black people by using black people to do it. Mm-hmm. But what I think if, if Kanye take the position, because what we have to remember too, do you know, is that it is Kanye name that go on that Adidas label and it's make it sell. You see, it wasn't Adidas out there selling and it's one. It was Kanye was connected to Adidas. Mm-hmm. It was Kanye was connected to this other company. So Kanye was is the money maker. So if Kanye West say, look, all right, you know what? I'm going to do for Kanye West. I say, I manufacture my own damn shoes. I put my own stuff out there. 
put it out there and you know put my own brain <laughs> you know well, it's, that's it's, who this guy is Kanye them want you know it's it, cool. that's the endorsement it's going to be interesting to see what happens. They manufacturing. All they have is the manufacturing and the publicity. 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 That's it. That's it. But it's Kanye. The people want is Michael Jordan. They want is LeBron. If those three knuckleheads could have it together, I said, let's start our own company. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's it's going to be interesting to see what happens within the next couple of weeks because. Uh, uh, you know, it's clear that uh, what they're doing in reference to him. When this happened with Nick Cannon and they pulled off those shows, I mean, you've seen what he did. He apologized about 50 times, and then they gave him a little talk show back. So well, I don't think, I don't think, I don't think, I don't think, I think he, 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 he out on the limb, no. Well, he, he's a do or die for him. Yeah, let's, 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 let's see what happens. Let's see what yeah, that is. It's going to be interesting. <laughs> all right. All right. Because you know that if he comes back and asks forgiveness from his people, that the people will, they'll, the people will rally around him. Well, I heard, I heard, I saw something today where I think they said where he uh, said, um, he, he, uh, I think, uh, asked for some apology. He apologized to the Floyd family. You know, I don't know with the, with the, the, the girlfriend. I don't know about that part. I think the girlfriend, you know, she probably she got the lawsuit. But I I read somewhere where he said, you know, he he make up. That would be the smart thing to do. Yeah, see, they didn't. That they would did, be the intelligent thing to do. They didn't. They didn't. So, they, they didn't pull anything when he was talking crazy and like you said, saying George Floyd was on drugs. You know, all kind of crazy statements. They ain't pulled nothing away from it. Crazy, I say, brother. Look, I was listening to the guy, and I first I like the guy. I tell the truth, so this guy is a knucklehead. But when I listen to him and hear and listen him out a little bit, he got a lot of sense. He just got he got like fifty personalities, but he's super talented, you know. But he got a lot of stuff going on inside, you know. So, you know, let's see what happens. All right. Talk to you later. Thanks for your contribution. All right. No problem. No problem. Yeah, Richard, I don't know whether you, you've you been seeing a lot of that stuff that's been going on with him here the past week. Yeah, it's, uh, I, 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 no, I'm going to do this. No comment. <laughs> watch, watch it unfold. Yeah, exactly. That's it. It's going to be interesting to, to see this thing unfold and to see what happens in relation to what he does because they didn't already did what they're going to do. Mm-hmm. And they might come after him some more, but it's going to be interesting to see how he counters this move, because it's it's some folks out there that want to stand with him. I'm talking about some of these other young blacks that's in entertainment, right. but they kind of they they stand on shaky ground, and you can see that they publicly just came after Kyrie Irving again. They didn't like him anyway because he refused to take that shot and was vocal about it. So now they're coming at him again. They This is about the third or fourth time, maybe over the past year, where they didn't come at him. But believe me, when they come at Kyrie Irving, they got to come right because that brother ain't no lightweight for a man as young as he is. You can see that he's been around people that have kind of schooled him in his life. Yes, yes. We'll see what happens. Before we go this evening, just want to give uh, the lineup on time for an awakening media Mondays, Wednesdays, and Fridays, African Perspectives. With Brother Oshi, always interesting dialogue and conversation 
on African Perspectives. That's Monday and Wednesday and Friday, 11 a.m. to 1 p.m. Later on that evening, Black Therapy Central with host Dr. Maria Combine and Dr. Kamal Combine. That's 8 to 9 and Conversation Reparations 9 to 10, the first and third Mondays of the month. On Tuesday, Black Reality Think Tank with host Dr. William Rogers. That's from 8 to 10. On Wednesday, it's uh, you know what? Uh, the Black Farmers did that cooperative thing. I don't know. Some of our listeners did tune in on Wednesday. Re- interesting dialogue, Richard. Yes. Uh, and I'm going to put that up uh, for podcast distribution on the website. I should have did it already, but uh, I've been doing about 20 other things. But I- I'm going to get that up for the listening audience that didn't catch it. Very interesting what they're doing. And uh, it just only goes to show you know, some of our people, they feel as though our people ain't doing anything because it's not on uh, 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 the Golden Eagle. What's his name? Uh, you know who I'm talking about. Or it's not on Sharpton or it's not on uh, oh Joe Madison. If it's not on Madison, if it's not on Sharpton, if it's not on Roland Martin, we're not doing anything. But it's a lot of things going on that we got to keep our ear to the ground, be involved with people that are doing something in your community. If you're not doing anything, uh, if you're not involved with people that are trying to do something, then start something yourself. It's a lot going on. We just got to be tied into it. But I'm going to put that up so folks can see that these black co-ops from all around the country are trying to band together and work together, which is a huge key. And you have representatives basically from the four quadrants, Richard. The Mm. the conference was held in Washington. You had folks from up north, Michigan, you had folks from the deep south. You had folks from California. So you you had the four quadrants covered. Right. Yeah. And and other people that's involved. So, you know, I'm I'm gonna put that podcast up so the folks can hear it. Uh on Fridays from eight to ten, uh time for an awakening is back from eight until and on Saturdays from seven to nine, the elders of San Kofa were Brother Alfonso Watkins. I want to thank everybody for listening to the program this evening. Lively discussion, as always, and we'll be back on Sunday, Lord willing, to continue on this path towards an awakening. Peace. Peace. If you're driving through the country on a lazy afternoon, or you're watching your children playing,
Thank you. 